Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Mary Harrington, a contributing editor at Unheard and the author of Feminism Against Progress, a book that has just been released in the UK and will soon be released in America too. It is a wildly original book. You know, you don't have to agree with Mary on everything, but you do have to admit that she is a brilliant thinker. Her analysis of history is so radical, upends so many progressive shibboleths. Um, she charts a completely different account of the experience of women um, from the Industrial Revolution onwards. And her analysis of what we're seeing right now in the digital era, in the biotech era, is very urgent, um, very worrying, and I think extremely important. So this is a really, really stimulating conversation. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Mary, could you please explain to the boys and girls at home what reactionary feminism is? <laughs> um, it's a very short answer to a very long process of thought for me, which was what does it look like to still believe that women's interests need defending even if you don't believe in progress? Mm -hmm. So, if or to put it another way, if I'm if I don't believe in progress, can I still be a feminist? And I, to cut a very long story, very short, I came to the conclusion that a, not only did I not believe in progress, but it didn't follow from that that women's interests don't still need speaking for and to, in and of themselves, um, as distinct from those of men, um, and that furthermore, um, a lot of what comes under the general banner of progress, including a lot of stuff which currently presents itself as feminism is actively inimical to women's interests at this point because the, the the wider cultural and material conditions have changed so much that if we try and import those legacy objectives from the industrial era into where we are now, we're just going to end up making things worse for most women. Mm. What's the dis difference, do you think, between conservative feminism and reactionary feminism? Because I get this question all well, the time. No, I'm not, I'm not sure that there is such a thing as conservative feminism. Well, I mean, the I, I started that section of my book, Feminism Against Progress, with a quote from Nicolas Gomez Davila, who is a Colombian, um, a Colum who was, I believe, a Colombian recluse who sort of lived and wrote in aphorisms in his library um, and writes a lot about reaction and the reactionary. And he has this wonderful aphorism where he says, the true reactionary is not a seeker after abolished pasts, but a hunter of sacred shades on the eternal mm -hmm. hills. And uh, th to me, that sums up the difference between conservative and reactionary very neatly in the sense that I don't I don't think there's any point trying to turn the clock back. I mean, I'm fond of saying that the tradwives and a return to what people call the traditional family, the traditional family, quote unquote, is not actually very traditional. In fact, it's distinctively modern because it emerged in response to work leaving the home in the industrial era. And so to talk about going back to the material conditions of the industrial era for most young men and women forming families now is just self-evidently nonsense. You know, you can't you can't go back to it. Well, you can't easily without a lot of systemic changes, go back to a world where manufacturing jobs are abundant and well paying enough that a significant proportion of the population can survive on one income. I mean, it would be desirable to return to a world where couple where families can survive on one income, maybe. But but the, but whether or not whether or not that's even possible is an open question. And whether or not it will be feminist to try what you'd have to do in order to get there is 
um, is, is, a, is a secondary, is another question. Whether or not it would be in women's interest to try. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced. Mm, mm. It's funny, ever since you coined the term reactionary feminism, like a few years ago, um, and I initially started um, using it as a joke and then increasingly using it quite seriously because it's actually a great term um, in, in large part because it's funny. Uh, it, now, if I'm accused of being a reactionary, my instant response is like, "Thank you." <laughs> the... Why? 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 Yes, thank yes. you very much. You have me back to rights. Yeah. I mean, to be the the genesis of the term for me was it was out of a very lengthy argument with a friend conducted almost entirely via Twitter DM over a period of several months, where he he picked a fight with me over the term post liberal which I was fond of using at the time. And I said, well, what does that actually mean? You know, you don't mean post-liberal, you mean reactionary. I said, I beg your pardon. You know, who are you and why are you telling me this? Um, and we had, a, we had an extremely long, long argument about it. Um, and his, his, his position um, to very, very crudely was that post-liberals are reactionaries who don't inhale. <laughs> you know, they're just not, not thinking through the, 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 the implications of their stance. And that, in fact, it was much better just to be hung for a sheep as for a lamb. And so instead of calling oneself post-liberal, you know, you should think it all the way through and just call yourself a reactionary, as distinct from being a conservative, because there isn't really anything left to conserve. And, and if you're a reactionary, that implies a completely different relation to um, to what your political change plan mm -hmm. might be, if, if, there, if, if even there is such a mm -hmm. thing. It's a completely different relationship to the recent past, I think. Yes, yeah. it's a, and, and, and absolutely, it's a completely different relationship to the recent past and, you know, what, what we might be trying to achieve through the political process or even what the political process is. Um, now, this is a much bigger debate than, than one, one just concerning feminism. And, you know, most, we went around the houses over it in all, all kinds of directions. But eventually I conceded the point. I thought I, I came, came, came to think that actually he was right. Um, that post liberal. Post-liberals are reactionaries who don't inhale, and and by way of by way of conceding, I just I I just changed my Twitter bio from post-liberal feminist to reactionary feminist, just to see how long it would take him to notice. And about three days, I think. Um, and it was a very very oblique way of of conceding defeat on that point. And then and then a, li a little while, and, I, and besides, I just thought it was funny. It was a nice, you know, the idea of being both a reactionary and a feminist just struck me as funny, and it's a sort of. Um, it sort of short circuits a whole load of stuff, so I thought, well, I'll just leave it there. It's, it seems it seems apt, even though I don't completely know what it means. And then a little while after that, um, somebody at First Things wrote to me and said, "This is a very arresting phrase you've coined. Can you would you like to write something for us and tell us what it means?" And I thought, well, sure, but I have to work that out first. And so I, I think the first draft I filed was was uh, it was a defence of it was a kind of Marxist reread of the history of feminism composed almost entirely of Davila quotes, which was just I mean it was it was great it was a very arch joke but not really suitable for publication so they very politely rewrote it several times until it turned into the piece which now stands at first things which is called reactionary feminism, which is probably the first time I ever set out to explain how I got to how I got to not not believing in progress but still wanting to. Um, defend women's interests and what I what I believe that means in practice in terms of where we mm -hmm. are now. So it was a very very kind of it was a very, it was an extremely online process, I suppose. I mean, how appropriate though, but, because this is about fashioning yeah, well, feminism yeah. for the digital age. I guess, I guess so. It's, it's sort of it makes sense that it should have been a very online um, way of finding myself. But I, I'm a great believer in memeing first and asking questions <laughs> later because I think often often you often one you can intuit. Um, a convincing you you can intuit something in 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 very condensed form you know vis visually or through a, a, a 
snappy phrase and not completely understand what it means, but people get it and then and 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 have fun playing with it. And then you know, for, much much further down the line, you figure out how to explain it in paragraphs in 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 terms that would make sense to um, somebody who doesn't think like that. Mm. I mean, you know, like like dark satanic John Stuart Mills. Um, this, is a, <laughs> this is one of those stupid coinage that I've been playing recently that I think catches something. Uh, it'll take probably take me a while to explain in, in paragraphs, but but yeah, re- reactionary feminism started very much in those terms. I mean, I think the reason for the um, the the, you know, the the common internet phrase "the left can't meme," I think it's true, and I think the reason the left can't meme and the reason that the right are um, are marginalised in basically every institution except the except the internet because actually the right are really good at memeing is because memes are all about capturing intuitions like immediately visually with very little text you just get it and i think reactionary feminism does well, that and, and, and to the yeah 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 and to the extent that um progressivism which i i should just dis- I, I should say i distinguish from leftism in the industrial sense but progressive cyborg progressivism which is really what i what i set myself against you know i'm not i'm not really i'm not really hostile to the old left because i think they you know their their position their role and within the history of the industrial era was on balance an extremely positive and necessary mm-hmm. one um but cyborg progressivism i i see as just straight up straight up you know bad for people bad for humanity so i i don't see, i don't see them as my friends and to the extent that that worldview is a war on noticing of course they're going to be bad at memes because memes are um they they, they emerge out of pattern recognition mm-hmm. That sort of that's, that's gestured at and or sort of referenced obliquely rather than being sort of directly spelled out at tedious length. You know, if you have to argue your case, then you've already lost. You know, you you get the kind of the the kind of the joke about you know the left wing memes, which are just a wall of text on top of a fairly boring picture. You know, that's that's kind of you know that's a structural problem with being being at war with basic reality. I think, you know, you have to explain yourself and using a lot of words where. Where in fact your everything everything that you're saying runs radically counter to what what people just intuitively see as true. Mm. Yeah, the the phrase should really be progressive can't meme because yes, I think that distinction yes. is is really valuable one. And actually, there's a lot in your book which is uh, very old left. You know, when you write, for instance, yeah, yeah. about um, I, I can't remember if this is in the book or if I've read it elsewhere. I think it is in the book when you write about. Um, poor peasant labourers in India getting hysterectomies because having a uterus makes them less employable locally because of the risk of not just the risk of pregnancy, but just menstruation, having, you know, a few days of of substandard labour per year. Like that is, uh, yes, that is, you are being so much truer to left-wing principles there than the cyborg progressives who kind of wear leftism's skin like a suit. Absolutely. Well, that's that's very much my my uh, defence of where where I'm coming from. I suppose you know, I, I come out of the left. Um, I was I was waving placards at anti anti capitalist rallies in my twenties. You know, back in back at the age of peak progress in the noughties when Starbucks was only just starting to colonise all the independent coffee shops, and you know it still it still felt as though as though the old left might stand a chance. You know, before Occupy Wall Street failed, really. Um, and and I, my basic priors, I don't think have changed a great deal since then, except that I lost my faith in progress. That's really the the main substantive difference. Um, but but in, and and what happened? What seemed to happen around two thousand and eight is the people who still believed decided that they still believed in progress, 
um, had to turn leftism into something that was compatible with Wall Street. And the people who lost their faith in progress and sort of kept the critique of capitalism had to abandon the left. Um, and there's been, you know, politics has been, it's been just a, a colossal mess ever since with everybody trying to figure out where exactly they stand. And I'm, I'm by no means the only sort of late Gen X um, person with basic fundamentally anti-capitalist priors who's trying to make sense of what happens when when the movement of capital isn't into the natural world or, you know, the, the, the natural or mineral or even animal world, but has turned inwards to the human body. And to me, that's, that, that's really the defining feature of where we are now, the enclosure of the human body and the enclosure of the human soul. Um, the, you know, the, the enclosure of the soul happens via, um, social, via paid for social media, you know, the, in, in the sense that, you know, the, the basic money-making mode of, big of internet is to use big data as a way of aggregating insights about human desire and then monetizing those in one way or another and there are a thousand and one ways we can look at that but one one way you and i both converge in our interests and our um, polemic is the pornography industry which i think is probably the most na literally and figuratively nakedly venal um, instance of you know the the enclosure and commodification of desire and which is to say an aspect of the human soul um and and then and then in biotech, you know, the same enclosure and commodification of the human body. And of course, the two, the two are deeply interlinked in the sense that the digital now serves to condition and to discipline and to structure, you know, our fantasies about what our bodies can be and also our, and also our desires. You know, pornography isn't just a, it, it, it isn't, it isn't a, a static thing. It's a vector. You know, once you, once you find yourself on that train, you're, you're swiftly out in the world of blueberry porn and goodness knows what else besides. I'm you sorry, know, I'm going to have if... to stop you there and ask you to, to explain what blueberry porn is. Really? You, Louise, you just or, wrote or... a whole book about this stuff. You're, 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 you're the one who's been, who's been deep down in the squalid bowels of the, of everything which is so disgusting. I know but, what blueberry porn um, is or what blueberry porn is okay. shorthand for. I mean, so should we say that it's shorthand for <laughs> very, very weird kind of, internet enabled fetishes that no one would yeah, have come up with on their own yeah i think that's probably a, a fair description you know without without leaving leaving your your viewers needing a, a dose of yeah, please bleach, don't google it anyone you know, <laughs> don't, do not don't google it please don't google it uh, but there are let, let's let's just say there are as louise says some deeply squalid um internet enabled fetishes out there and all of which sort of come and come into the category of people just trying to feel something, having having burned their synapses completely dead through repeated obsessive um, consumption of in, of internet sexual stimuli. You know what what you Louise call the the, the cultural death mm -hmm. group. And people you know people end up consuming the most the most out there and sometimes just literally depraved content just just for the sake of feeling mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. Um, that which which includes all all manner of all manner of abuse footage, but also grotesque and uh, commute, computer generated or um, yeah digitally generated just fantasy. Um, the historical um, historical narrative that you're presenting against the progress model, so against the arc of the mm. universe bending towards justice model, is one where. Um, I suppose if we have a much earlier era of capitalism devouring the natural world and mm -hmm. um, absorbing and destroying it, what we're seeing now is that process moved to the 
human mind and body in the digital and biotech era. So it's not that um, there's no progress to be that seen there at all. What we're just seeing is basically more effective technology put to the purposes of capitalism to absorb well, suppose, ever more of I it. Suppose it's in just to nuance that yes um and I, I would nuance that ever so slightly by saying it's not as though nothing changes and depending on where you stand the process that i'm describing often looks like it can look like mm -hmm. progress um in the sense that um when you when when you use a technology to free yourself from a natural limit of some kind you know whether that's the the carrying capacity of a given you know area of farmland or uh for example, or how quickly you can get from A to B, um, you and you burn you burn energy in in one form or another, whether that's through you know, nitrogen fertilizers or fossil fuel, you know, com internal combustion engines or whatever. But in in some in some respect, you're using technology and and probably burning energy in order to in order to transcend some kind of natural limit. You do get a dividend of freedom from that. You know, somebody somebody will be getting something out of it. So it's not it it's not without benefits depending on where you're standing. Um, and that actually goes, that of course goes for the AI and the biotech era as well. But the flip side of that is that it's impossible to disaggregate freedom and trade. And to the extent that you get a dividend of freedom, you will also get a dividend of commerce and commodification. And again, some people will, some people will profit from this. You know, some people will be, some people will make a lot of money and then other people will find themselves being exploited because that's just, that's just the nature of the beast. And, you know, you can see that clearly. Um, the example, one of the examples I've given is the enclosure of the commons in Britain in the 19th century, where uh, all the subsistence peasants who'd been, who'd been living on the land and exchanging, um, you know, a, a a defined number of workdays per year for the right to farm um, a certain subset of land in common. They were all displaced from the land, um, which was then enclosed and privatised as the, the the private holding of a landowner. And there was a dividend from this in terms. It, it, it was it was one of the it was the backdrop to the first green revolution. In this, by, by, by green revolution, I mean it, it drove an, an, a boom, an absolute boom in agricultural productivity, which went to feed the the urbanization of Britain and it went to feed the 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 the, the swelling industrial the popular swelling population of the industrial cities. So it wasn't it wasn't without some positives um in the sense that there was more food. You know, that was all great. But um at the same time there were you know it wasn't it wasn't as though the peasants were un were, were grateful to be liberated from, you know, what what from our perspective looks like serfdom. You know, there were riots. There was there were there were pitched there were pitched fights. You know they didn't want to be emancipated. You know they wanted they wanted their livelihoods, and so they were, you know they it was fiercely resist enclosure was was resisted by the peasants, and actually this is a it's a bit of a digression from uh, reactionary feminism. But if you read the poet John Clare, who is a, a contemporary of um, the the Romantics, you know Wordsworth and Coleridge and Co. in in the nineteenth century. 18, late eighteenth, early nineteenth century. He's an incredibly tragic figure because he was a he was a peasant. Um, he lived in Northamptonshire, a little bit a little bit north of where I am in the east of England. Do I mean Northampton? No, I mean uh, Cambridgeshire. Anyway, he li he lived in the east of England, and he was and he 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 writes he writes the most beautiful, exquisitely observed nature poetry. Um, for, you know, from an from an incredibly intimate familiarity with his local landscape, and he writes beautifully about birds. You know, he's very very well loved. Um, nature poet, but he also writes with this fury and loss and devastation about what it was like to lose uh, the commons and what happened, what and, and what it felt like at ground level to be to be displaced in that way. And eventually, he went mad. He ended up in a in a, in an asylum for um, 
for for the mentally disturbed, writing these sort of insane kind of Byron pastiches, you know, bitter, cynical, completely unmoored from reality. And it was, I mean, it's sort of you, you can't really speculate at this remove about what happened to him. But it was it was as though he he lost he lost a fundamental part of who he was in the process of being displaced from his place and his way of his way of life. And those, yeah, it's an incredibly poignant story. And, and it's one I always think of when I think about um, what liberation actually means and, and what and the story and what can be lost in ways which are much more difficult to articulate when we privilege freedom at the expense of all the, all the other things that make up who we are and what we're doing. Um, so that's, that's a slight digression, but, <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's one which very much informs what I'm talking about when I, when I, when I map that, uh, that, that process from the, the enclosure of the commons to the enclosure of the human body. Where, and, and really, ground zero for that enclosure is women's bodies. Um, and I've, I situate the, the hinge moment in the enclosure of the human body with the arrival of the contraceptive pill and of abortion in the 1960s. Um, which which I I read very much as an, as the enclosure of female bodies and their privatization on the privatization of sexuality, you know, which is really the starting point for everything that you're discussing, Louise, in in the case against the sexual revolution, and and I suppose I'm looking at I'm I'm, I'm mapping Karl Polanyi's um, and to an extent some, to an extent Marxist theories onto what's actually happening there at scale economically and politically. And and trying trying to make sense of what that what it actually does when you're displaced not just from your home like John John Clare was, but from displaced from your 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 physical your embodied um, self, you know, and, and turned as it were into a product and a, and the workplace and the and the raw material, which is really the the dynamic which we're well into, you know, fifty years on from the beginning of the cyborg revolution at the at that point. You've said um, that you think the pill was the first transhumanist technology yes could you explain what you mean no, by that's that? not a point <laughs> now that that's not actually i haven't said that explicitly in the book because i think um it was it was subsequent to to completing the book that i realized the implications of everything that i was saying and realized that actually if i if i telescope down um, everything that i'm talking about the the, the the beginning of the cyborg era which which is you know to put it more succinctly it's the transhumanist era it's the point where our understand particularly women's understanding of personhood um, becomes inextricable from a reliance on for-profit technologies, in the sense that you know to 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 conceive of ourselves as emancipated means that we have to rely structurally on an ability to interrupt using technology our normal healthy functioning as fertile female humans. So so we and and otherwise we simply don't read as people. You know women are women are not people unless we unless fertility our fertility is 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 technologically interfered with so that its default setting is off instead of in fact the normal um of the, the normal healthy functioning of female fertility where the default the default is on um and and when i say the pill was the first transhumanist technology i mean it, it tipped us from a medical paradigm where the aim of the aim of any intervention in the human body was to fix something which had gone wrong so for example so I, I, I have a headache. I take a medicine to, to make the headache go away or my leg is broken and I go see the doctor who sets my limb and, and helps it to heal. And I think it's a difference in kind to ask for a medical intervention not to fix something which has gone wrong, but fi to fix something which is going right, which is to say normal, healthy fertility. Um, and if and, and once we've and, and my, my argument is that once we embrace that paradigm and we, and we make that you know, structurally indispensable for women to be to be read as people 
on the same terms as men. What we're saying is that transhumanism is a structural necessity for women, for, 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 for women to exist as political people. So in that sense, um, feminism, you know, un unless you're willing to question the basic, you know, the, the, the understanding of what a person is, which sits at the root of all, all of those arguments, um, you're, you're sort of shunted irreversibly towards um, feminism then becoming the entry point into transhumanism. And in Feminism Against Progress, I've made the case, I hope convincingly, that that entry of that entry point has led into a much wider incursion of the transhumanist paradigm, the sort of endless biomedical upgrades of the human person, um, into and and its its incursion much further into our bodies and our souls since the nineteen sixties. But 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 that really it was it was a feminism committed to the liberal idea of the radically of the autonomous person that that propelled us into that. A plus technology which propelled us into that uh, that that paradigm, which is where you know where we all now are. Maiden Mother Matriarch is brought to you by Keeper, the world's most advanced matchmaking solution. Now, many of you will know that I'm normally extremely suspicious of dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, which tend to produce repeat customers who must endure endless, miserable hookups and short-term relationships without ever finding a spouse. Well, Keeper is a completely different kind of service. Its algorithm prioritises immediate attraction, but also, crucially, long-term compatibility, because forever is the goal. Everyone in the Keeper matchmaking pool is there because they want to find a spouse. Using psychometric tests like Big Five, IQ and Masculine and Feminine Polarity, Keeper can accurately predict who you're going to have the strongest chemistry with. The platform only gives you a match if you are an exact fit psychometrically and if the match offers everything that you've told Keeper you're looking for in a partner. It won't waste your time with only good enough matches like other dating apps and matchmaking services will. So, Find your keeper at keeper.ai. That's K-E-E-P-E-R dot A-I. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And all done in service of the pursuit of freedom. But I, I, yes, but I suppose that the, um, a point that you make very well in the book is that this is freedom very very much mediated by class and the people who are uh winning from this regime are overwhelmingly the rich which might include some rich women so that that like it, it isn't it isn't clearly the case that this is entirely not in women's interest it's just not in the interest of the majority of women could you explain a little bit about the class distinctions that you see yeah so i mean i in this sense i'm arguably a class traitor in the sense that i belong very much you know without indisputably to the the laptop class you know i don't i don't work in the physical world for a living you know i sit i sit at my laptop and i type stuff <laughs> so so i'm i'm very much i'm 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 a net beneficiary of the feminism of freedom you know the cyborg feminism of freedom now as it is as it now is um but um my my read on this is that it's possible it's it's or at least it's much more plausible 
to argue that women can and must do our best to transcend our physiology and that to be a person is to flatten in every possible way the accidents the accidents or you know give the givens of our physiology this is actually this is I, I wish i could remember the exact quote but this the the transhumanist and trans activist martin rothblatt expresses this very very succinctly in from transgender to transhuman which is a sort of manifesto for everything which i'm i'm adamantly not keen on um and rothblatt rothblatt puts it puts it very much in those terms that the the march of progress means liberating ourselves from every every imaginable given of of our of our birth every every imaginable accident of our birth you know whether that's our economic givens or our physiological givens or our ethnicity or or our sex and as far as rothblatt is concerned this is that that's what progress means and and therefore and it follows from this that we can and should use technology to emancipate ourselves first from the givens of our sex and then biological extension of that from the givens of our human embodiment full stop and you know should we wish to upload ourselves to the cloud then the book argues that that should entirely be our prerogative so that's so that's the sort of that's that's the op optimistic case for for the kind of transhumanist um, understanding of what emancipation is. My view is that it's all very well to say that if you're a multimillionaire farmer entrepreneur, but it's another thing altogether if you're a, far, a farm worker in Maharashtra in India, um, where it's simply not plausible to emancipate yourself from the givens of your body, or at least it means something very different to emancipate yourself from the givens of your body. And, you know, and, and it's easy it's easy to see that if you're looking across geographies, but it's even the case within within the developed world. Um, so, so I mean, if you, uh, 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 an example I often give is that you, you don't you don't really you don't really see a fem you know, any, any noisy feminist campaigns for fifty fifty representation of women in in waste collection, and everybody knows why. You know, if you watch the bin lorries coming down the street and the guys running out and, and collecting the bins and then you know lobbing them into the machine and then it's incredibly physically demanding work. You know, and it's it's not very well paid. It's extremely low status. It's smelly and unpleasant, and it's very hard work. And those guys are ripped. And I can't imagine how much how many calories you must burn doing that for a whole day. Um, and you know, and and so and because there's nothing appealing about it, the feminists are not 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 even remotely interested. Nobody cares that that. I mean, <laughs> somebody somebody will almost certainly pop up in my mentions now and say, well, I know a female bin lorry. Uh, I know a female bin man, and and you know maybe there are one or two, but most most of the most women are just you know they're more likely to be five foot four and um and and somewhat somewhat slighter of build, and, and I think it's just not really work that you would choose, um given the you know, so if you're if you're down at that end of the socioeconomic food chain, um sex still matters, you know, and this is a point which the gender critical movement movement often makes that if you're if you're fleeing domestic abuse or you're homeless or you're or you're just poor um or you're in prison um sex still matters if if for reason, if you you just don't have the social status um and you know, social and well the social economic capital to emancipate yourself from or to 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 wall yourself off from the exigencies of reality you just can't keep up the pretense and and even even among middle and upper class women you know it's only really convincing to emancipate yourself from from the givens of physiology until you have kids um unless you're so rich that you can you can subcontract gestation and then you can subcontract care of your children you know the which, which point you really need to be elon musk's baby mama or you know up up there in that sort of super stratum but you know for most average middle class women like you and me you're confronted you know as you and i have both been um with with how 
the certain kind of irreducible physical realities the moment you have kids um so so i think i i think it's important to understand that this this idea that um, we can dematerialize our physiological givens or, our, or importantly our sex givens um as a as a basic feature of human liberation is an incredibly class blind um it's an, it's an incredibly class blind fantasy and it's one <laughs> this is actually you know i've i'm a I've, i'm a big fan of feminism for the 99% which is a it's a a critique of uh, the sort of lean in Sheryl Sandberg vision of feminism written by written by three authors who argue that this this none of this really applies to to women in most of the rest of the world um but what, one of the one of the curious ironies of the book is that somehow they haven't they haven't thought through the implication they they're still they're still in favor of including trans women in in that feminism and not realizing that in fact the idea that a, ma- a male could could become a woman is is very much a feature of the same of the sort of Martin Rothblatt perspective, which claims that we can emancipate ourselves from our physiological givens, and as such, as such, it just doesn't belong in their analysis at all. It radically undermines their analysis, and I find that I find that curious. But uh, it's one of the shibboleths of the cyborg progressives. So I think maybe maybe just including that as a as a it's just the price you pay for not being excommunicated. So I don't know. I'd I'd love to ask Nancy Fraser someday whether she really believes that. Yeah, I mean, I'm generally of the opinion that ninety percent of people who pay lip service to that don't really believe it. But that's another conversation. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> it's like it's it's Vaclav Havel's greengrocer's poster. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, yeah. You know, it has to it has to go in the window. But but to be honest, you every time I read an, an otherwise interesting feminist book, and I I reach the I find I get as far as the greengrocer's poster in in the in the shop yes. window in the introduction i just think oh please oh, no, no. could you not just could you not just go around it could you not just not say that and just leave it just let it be between the lines but almost nobody does you can see why people why writers in academia do that um we we both have the rare privilege of um generally not having to um but it mean but it means that you do exclude yourself from from certain from certain um places i was just reminded while you were talking about um the the mining of poor people's bodies for profit in the 21st century of a, a, a an historical analogy which um i hadn't linked to before but i'm just reminded in, in my own head because i did i did a lot of research work on this some years ago and never ended up actually writing anything publicly about it uh body snatching in the early 19th century very very interesting uh class politics around body snatching because um i can't remember the exact sequence but um uh, initially, you only have um, sort of uh, executed criminals whose bodies can be dissected by anatomists. And then you have a, 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 an expansion of medical schools and a desire for more bodies. And there aren't enough executed criminals because this is at the same time where you have a reduction in use of capital punishment, um, which is also why Australia was colonised. That's a whole other story. And so you just have fewer fewer bodies available. And so body snatching becomes big business. And there is push to... Um, allow the bodies of people who die in workhouses to be anatomized and yeah and poor people are obviously extremely opposed to this because this is an era when i mean not only do people in all cultures tend to have very very um particular views of what should be done with human bodies but also this is in a very christian era when people believe that you know you will not you will your soul will not be saved if your body is anatomized which is why it's of course done to condemn criminals and it becomes a whole a, a source of class conflict which is eventually resolved by um formaldehyde because now you don't need that many bodies to anatomize because you can preserve one body i mean when i was briefly at medical school we just shared a single um 
well-preserved body among half a dozen medical students and this was someone who was um, probably not religious and quite happy to donate their body to medical science but but you know uh, 200 years ago the class politics are completely different and what ended up ended up happening which bodies ended up being mined it was in America it was the bodies of slaves in elsewhere in the world it was the bodies of very poor people Um, it was paupers graves that were ransacked it was not the, the graves of rich people you know when um it's that insight in the Nina Simone song, you know, where she got my eyes, got my ears, got my whatever, like, it, but but put to like a really morbid use. Like, basically, if you're poor, that is basically the only thing you have in the end is your is your is your body. I mean, of, of course, is extending extending beyond that. There's the absolutely blood curdling history of medical experimentation on live female enslaved yes. people in in the United States um, in the 19th century. I mean, the 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 specifics, are, the specifics are so horrifying, um, and and you know the and led but and led to scientific discoveries which are still in use now. But but the, but those poor women, yeah, and what they endured, yeah, and we're 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 mad if we think that that's not that could not just as easily happen in in our era or in the future, just in different right. well, ways. Well, I mean, well, well, it is happening. Yeah. I mean, it happened. It it happened in the Nazi in in but it, under Mengele mm-hmm. in the camps. Um, Paul Virilio makes makes the point that the what what happened what what was done in the camps is serves as the precursor to a great many biomedical experiments which have been you know, to to a whole body of work which has simply been continued since since Mengele's days uh, it's just been whitewashed as it were um, and it's it's being continued in China. I mean, it's it's now very well documented and widely understood that the Chinese prisoners, are, Chinese political prisoners, particularly the Falun Gong, are are held, are incarcerated, and then they're killed to order for the transplant industry. And I'd be extremely surprised if that didn't also extend to medical experimentation where necessary. Um, and just to just to follow to bring that back to Europe, I mean, it's it seems fairly clear to me that. The, the principal difference between our direction of travel in the West and, our, and the direction of travel in China is that we, we, we maintain a legacy um, Christian heritage conception of the human person and the dignity of the human person, which acts as a drag, as a sort of sea anchor on the, the sort of Roman levels of um, inhuman experimentation on, on anybody who's you know, un- unfortunate enough to, be, to become the, the subject. Of, of that kind of torture, but in but in China because they have quite a different conception of human individuality and human personhood. Um, this th- there's just less of a block on that. And so in in the United States, I believe there's a bill going through in Massachusetts at the moment, which would which, which is essentially um, it's essentially the same you know transformation of incarcerated people into resources. They've just given it a sli- a thin gloss of opt in, because what they're what they're off proposing to do is to offer reduced sentences. For incarcerated prisoners in exchange for donating organs or bone marrow, and and really that really that's that's a difference of degree from what's happening to the Falun Gong in China. It's not a difference in kind, because the extent to which you know, and it's being it's being presented by the the Democrat proposers of this bill as an extension of bodily autonomy to to prisoners. And I think, well, you know, that's that's bodily autonomy in the same sense as a woman who is forced by economic desperation to rent her anus or her mouth or her vagina or her uterus to to somebody to use as a resource is exercising bodily autonomy and, and enjoying freedom and choice 
within within the market you know it's it's it might it's it's a choice it's choice of a kind but only in the absolutely thinnest possible uh, understanding of choice and you know with with a willful level of blindness to to the to the to the class asymmetries and the power politics which 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 just get get glossed over by 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 focusing on the invisible hand you know exactly yeah, the, the the invisible hand is actually holding a big stick for a lot of people uh, which is which is really not very is it's it's more it's plenty visible if you're if you're at the sharp end of it Yes. And if you are, um, say, a Kardashian, I think you mentioned the Kardashians as examples of people who are sort of benefiting from the the cyborg era. Um, not only, I mean, Kim Kardashian is is sort of a cyborg in that her, um, she's clearly a, a, a real living person, but her, um, her, her, her product, her public image is c- completely digital, basically, mm-hmm. and also mm-hmm. um, embellished in digital ways. Her body, you know, allegedly she has... Um, butt implants and things like that, which obviously hugely add to her um, her fame and success. And she used a surrogate um, at least once to have children. So she is an example of a woman who is certainly making a lot of money and uh, sort of easing some of her 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 personal struggles through the use of this kind of cyborg technology at the expense of poorer women and probably to some extent at her at her own psychological expense although who can say because she's quite a she's quite a um a difficult person to understand on a, on that kind of intimate psychological level but um it can this this stuff can look like freedom for some people yeah if you've got the money to yeah. pay for it somebody <laughs> so, so somebody sent me a, a an email or a, a message or a social media advert that they'd received just the other day which 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 summed this up in a nutshell it said this international women's day uh, will celebrate international women's day by hiring a cleaner <laughs> really <laughs> and i think you know this the, the the idea that you can celebrate women's emancipation by subcontracting gestation is it, it is really the is the same logic but taken taken to its extreme mm. you know because the chances are your cleaner will be a woman who also who also, you know, more likely than not has her own house to clean, and she more likely than not has her own children to look after. Um, and the the uh, and the idea that we we emancipate ourselves—it's a Ponzi scheme in a, in a nutshell, you know. And if you're at the top of a Ponzi scheme, you can do pretty well out of it. But if you're down at the bottom, it's a completely different ballgame. And the the idea that we can we can emancipate ourselves from the givens of our bodies in that way turn, it, for for women, for more more often than not, it turns out to be a Ponzi scheme. I mean, I guess for men as well, to some extent, men can also um, sell their organs and indeed their male prisoners selling their bone marrow, as you as you say. So it's not uh, strictly a women only issue. But I think that it is a I think it disproportionately impacts women. And my um, my view as to why, say, selling sex or selling reproductive services as surrogacy or um selling your organs all of these things are different from selling your labor which cleaning is to be fair you know that that, that's a that's an age-old practice people selling their labor i think that's i think i think we both think that that's fine as long as people are are properly reimbursed and treated properly and so on but there is a different difference in kind between that and mining the human body for profit in the way that we are now doing in the biotech era my feeling is that it's because things like sex things like reproduction things like bodily integrity are sacred is the word I'm going to use 
kind of provocatively, but that they just are. People experience them differently. People feel, have enormously different emotional responses to those kinds of incursions compared with compared with selling their labour, for instance. I mean, this is a, this is a cyborg theocracy, to use your phrase, which I'm going to ask you to define in a moment, doesn't believe in that kind of sacredness. It has a completely different set of sacred principles. And that's why I think we come, we we are at odds because we basically just have completely different definitions of what is sacred and what needs to be protected. Um, they want to protect freedom. That's their sacred principle. Yep, I think that's it. That's it in a nutshell. Um, yeah, I think the way I put it in feminism against progress is that you know if, if we go back to this analogy, the enclosure of the commons and. The, the enclosure of the human body. Um, John Clare was displaced from his home and that was bad enough. Um, but it's not possible to, when when you enclose a human body, um, it's not possible to displace a me, it's, it's not possible to displace me from my body in order to privatise my body without me because I'm still, you know, I am my body. Um, so if you, when you proletarianize women by privatising our bodies, um, we're still in them because we are them and and therefore the the experience it's it's experienced in a very different way which is just straightforwardly the, the the stuff of nightmares you know to be to be to continue to be embodied while somebody's turn has turned you into a resource is the stuff of nightmares and this is this is what countless sex trade survivors report as the the the, the ground the, the ground zero of the the deep trauma and dissociative um, pathologies which they end up trying to recover from for many years afterwards you know there's the the experience of you know continuing to be continuing to inhabit your body as you do because we are our bodies um, while somebody is using you as a thing um, that's a that's that, it's a lot to endure um, and 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 it's it was bad enough for John Clare to be displaced from his home, but you know, in theory, at least, it's possible to create a home somewhere else. It's it's possible to move countries or, and and to to make a new home. It's not you know, but I can't. You can't. If, if you displace me from my body, I have nowhere to go. And there's something profoundly nightmarish about that. And you know, and and I, I I know I I see and honour your use of the term sacred. I think that it condenses. I mean, it, it condenses a lot of references to um, a, the, a, an extensive, a lengthy um, spiritual heritage in the West, which we probably don't have time to get into here. Um, and I think it's it's important to acknowledge that that's part of our the sort of cultural legacy that we that we need to that we need to tap into and and to find ways of continuing um, because the, the because there's a great deal which is. Which is positive and and nourishing and um, healthful, I think, for people, for flourishing societies in that in that paradigm. And it's not one which I think we'd be wise to lose. So, as hang on, before I go on, as promised, what does cyborg theocracy mean? You are queen of coinages, <laughs> so I have to get you to <laughs> outline your different coinages. Cyborg, cyborg theocracy. I I should say it's not it's not original. It was somebody else memed it first, and and I I I, I nicked it. And I suppose have made it my own because it's such a it's such a uh, evocative term. 
And, you know, if I were to define it, I would say it's the moral and political order which comes downstream of privileging freedom to the extent that we're willing to make ourselves inextricable from our technologies, um, which is, and the, as I've, as I said earlier in our conversation, the hinge moment for me in, in the, the arrival of cyborg theocracy as a paradigm is, is the, is birth control and legal abortion. And to my, to my eye, abortion serves increasingly, increasingly now in, in the political debates around surrounding abortion it seems to have taken on taken on for for the cyborg theocrats a kind of sacramental significance um because it's the point it's a point where there's a zero sum conflict between freedom and interdependence you know in that we have a you're gestating an, an unborn child who's radically dependent on your body for its continued existence and for development into a into a person who can exist in their own right um, and to to continue to to welcome that person is an act of radical hospitality, which has all sorts of implications, as both of us know, for the mother. Um, and if you and, and to say at that point, I that freedom, our freedom is so important that it can it can be it can be claimed even at the expense of that that radical vulnerability. Uh, where, where, wherever you stand on the spiritual aspects of that or the, the legal or political aspects of that, it's, an, it's a very, 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 it's about the most extreme possible statement you could make in defense of freedom, even at the expense of care and interdependence. And to, to my eye, the, the entire edifice of cyborg theocracy is downstream of our having assented collectively to that, to that basic, that, that fundamental statement that freedom matters that much. Yes, and this is in the context as well of a very rapid slippage from uh, the sort of safe, legal, and rare mainstream position that abortion mm-hmm. is 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 sad, but sometimes necessary in the most sort of tragic cases. To now, what you are much more likely to hear, particularly in American pro-choice rhetoric around the fetus being a parasite, it's not. It's just like getting a wisdom tooth removed. This kind of um, this kind of rhetoric is a fairly new appearance on the scene, and I think. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's part of this historical trend that you that you outline. Um, yes, I mean, I think the other story that's going on here, and it's very pertinent when we're talking about abortion, is is dechristianization, which mm-hmm. happens at, at at the exact same moment. I mean, it was already underway before the nineteen sixties, but the nineteen sixties is when it really, really accelerates. And progressives think that that's a really good thing, right? Dechristianization is is a is a move away from the uh, wickedness and foolishness of the past. Um, I don't think that they have really appreciated what that actually means. What full dechristianization will actually herald? We've already talked about. You've written very compelling about. You've written compellingly about this. The extent to which the 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 post Christian feminists are sawing off the branch they're sitting yeah. on. You know, in, in the in the sense that the, the the aim is to abolish Christianity in service to what are essentially Christian values, not realizing that if you if you get rid of the account of the human person which is founded in Christianity, then there's no there's no fundamentally no basis left for those values at all, and therefore there's no real no real guarantee that we're going to see them persist. And I, and I think you can you can make the same case for transhumanism more generally, you know, which which fundamentally depends on attacking our our, our, a common, our common understanding of what human nature is, you know, this sort of basic, the normative gestalt understanding of what human, 
what what people are and what we do and what we can and can't manage and what you know and, and an account of human dignity and human personhood and, phys- and our physical integrity you know all of that is all of that is up for grabs now is up for, up for upgrade in the in the transhumanist paradigm but um once you get rid of that paradigm why would and 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 the the positive case for transhumanism is that you know if we could do if if in doing this we could relieve suffering or ensure lengthy dignified lives then surely that's a good thing and i'm thinking yes okay but if you get rid of that that essentially christian understanding of the human of what a what a person is and and what we should and shouldn't be trying to achieve then why would you, why would those values even really matter anymore um you know why why would somebody not you know apply the same technologies to a completely different set of ends such as well i mean any i mean at that point we're back to mengele and the camps aren't we and and there's no there's there's, there's very little you're left with very little in by way of counter argument to to a whole a whole new wave of Mengele's once you've once you've attacked the 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 basically Christian understanding of what a human person is. Yeah, and it becomes really hard to um, if you do away with the Christian notion of kind of radical spiritual equality. It, you know, often uh, very inconsistently expressed. Christian societies do all sorts of horrible things to them, to each other, and to other societies. Um, but at least it's there. You know, if you're if you're in early nineteenth century debates over body snatching, do at least there is still a collective understanding that there is something wrong about destroying people's bodies and thereby destroying people's souls within 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 a Christian framework. If if you do away with that. You know, like my the, the the point that I try to make to kind of um, anti-Christian feminists, and I should say I say this as a kind of agnostic cultural Christian. Um, I'm 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 somewhere in the middle in terms of my actual belief. But I I say to anti-Christian feminists, you know, if you if you like Christian patriarchy, you're going to love post-Christian patriarchy because. I think that's absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 absolutely right, and, and again, we can extend that into the rest of transhumanism. Where I think where I think the right is most ambivalent about the, the transhuman turn is not in the creation of monsters, because I mean, most most on the right will instinctively be disgusted by paediatric gender transition, for example, or human animal chimeras, you know, and will will instinctive will will reflexively come out against that stuff because you know, essentially you're you're creating. Frankenstein's creatures, um, but where but a, a major a, a major site of ambivalence for the right on these kind of transhuman technologies is where you're not creating monsters but creating supermen, mm-hmm. and and that's that that I think is very much up for grabs. Um, enormously tempting. Where if you it, have the technology, it is enormously it is, tempting. That's precisely it. I mean, I know, I, I know you've you you've spoken to or are shortly to speak to people who are certainly outside the, the cyborg progressive left, but who are very enthusiastically engaged in you know setting out to create supermen. Um, and it's a yeah, I don't I don't really know where that debate is. I, I I sort of feel like the right has only just begun to have that debate um, about you know where where do people stand on the creation of supermen? Is this is this some is this forbidden? And if so, why? And if it's not forbidden, then why would we even how how can we even plausibly argue against any anybody else who wants to remodel themselves as they see fit? You know, and really, how how do we how, how do we hold a coherent position on this at all? Yeah, it's it's an enormously enormously confused area in my in my view. Yes, I mean, it's a, the conflict between the Christian and the post-Christian right has um is only yep. in the in yep. its earliest stages, really. I think on these matters, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and I think that to some extent the reason why we have um until recently 
been opposed generally on a societal level to anything that smacks of Nazism and eugenics and so on is, is because of the, 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 the fallout from the Second World War. But I think that as people for, come to forget that and the people who lived during that era die away, I think that those limits will fade. And if yeah, that's already yes, happening, and if Christianity has also faded, there's really nothing in the way. That's a true place <laughs> to, to arrive at. And this, and this is, and this is fundamentally what the pro, the project of reactionary feminism is mm-hmm. about. It's about doing doing our best to reground men and women in our bodies and our relationships to one another. You know, as you know, maybe it's a futile attempt to stand against some of these some of these macro trends. But I I feel if if we're going to stand any chance at all of of mounting a counter argument, it has to start from it has to start from solidarity with men and a re engagement with our embodied selves and our relationships to one another. And and so and so I make the feminist case against the pill. I make the feminist case for men having their own spaces just as women have their own spaces, and for and for radical solidarity between the sexes in the interests of having somewhere anywhere to stand um, against against some of these larger and to me profoundly disturbing trends yeah reactionary feminism defending the human yep in, yeah. in a nutshell yes yeah. it's it's one you know there, there are different ways of approaching a defense of the human but that's that's i suppose that's the bigger picture of what i what i hope to achieve or make some small contribution to a beautiful nature end on mary can you tell viewers Thank and you. listeners uh uh when your book is out where they can find more of you the book is out now with Forum Press. Um, you can find it through all, all major booksellers. Um, you can find most of my writing is at Unheard, where I'm a weekly columnist, uh, at my Substack, Reactionary Feminist. And you can find me on Twitter at Moving Circles. And when's the US publication? The US publication is on the 25th of April and the publisher is Regnery. I'll actually be out in the US in DC and New York in case that's that's any of your neck of the world i'll be i'll be doing a few book events around the 25th of april to celebrate the book fantastic and i think also a live event with unheard um yes, yes. it's also yes. coming up I'm, I'm live streaming with unheard next this coming week on thursday at 4 p.m so look out for that i should say as well that the audiobook i would highly recommend partly because mary has to read out some incredibly <laughs> embarrassing quotes uh acquired on the internet oh, there was so, I took, I, it took so many takes to be able to read out the the, the cardio, <laughs> um, and just and just do, doing it in an English accent is pure comedy anyway. So, yes, so. I remember us having a debate. <laughs> do you, you say ass? I think you do say ass. I think that's the only yep, way to pronounce yep, it. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can't. I can't. I, I did. I say ass or ass in the end. I I can't remember. Well, buy the audio book to find out, everyone. <laughs> there you go. There we go. Thank you, <laughs> Mary. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Louise. It's been great. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Maiden Mother Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give 